you know, anything I saw that was alcohol related, I saw the billboards drive by my old liquor stores and turn and look at them as if I'm looking at an ex-girlfriend. And it was not recovery. Welcome to the Recovery Edge Cast. My name is Alfredo. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Alfredo. Hi. I'm sitting here with Patrick, and um, I met Patrick at the the Happy Treasures Group in Denver, um, where I've went for about five years, and you were there the entire time. Yes, I was. Um, I'm also still sitting here with his son Beck, and. Um, been it's been a great uh session today um and now it's your turn all right well so i think i'm ready all right why don't you tell us a little bit about um what what you're doing today or these days oh what what i'm doing today is um i'm primarily making art Mm -hmm. uh, but i also sell paintings by other artists to uh, clients here in Denver. And so kind of mixing those two things up, I've been selling art in Denver since 1982. And in my sober journey, I started making art. Um, so when is your sobriety date and do you have a home group? Yeah. July 17th, 2000. And my home group is the Happy Trudgers Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's a noon meeting, and it's in downtown Denver. One of my attractions to it was there seemed to be a higher intellectual uh, crowd there that um, talked beyond the superficiality of the step work uh, because at the some of the first meetings I went to, I mean, those people are all losers. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I just said, I can't be in here with all these losers. <laughs> Would you like to rephrase that? Um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, okay. So you had your, so you liked the happy treasures group. It was more white collar and actually probably even beyond just white collar, but more into subject matter of spirituality and just, beyond um quitting drinking or and something yeah they 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 weren't reconciling everything through the big book um so they would talk about the step work in a more metaphysical sense some of them not everybody but i noticed that very specifically at the trudge then i versus the some of the first meetings i went to in aa um however now, you know, I realize, oh, yeah, hey, I'm in here with all these losers. And uh, now I really value the very sort of essential type of um, thinking around AA that you get in meetings where there's a lot of newcomers or it's a much more blue-collar environment. There's mm-hmm. a really raw kind of experience that you get and hear things from in a very raw uh, approach to sobriety. Yeah. You know, it's less 
less less heady like you know it's more practical mm-hmm. so it's nice to blend the two yeah um i go to a couple meetings that i feel like are the shares are more on a gut level and less like processed you know right. sometimes people think really hard and i appreciate them you know it's a it's a different um environment but it's helpful to me anyways right and and the interesting thing about the um meetings where there's a processed almost canned share is you know a lot of us are processing our share during the meeting you know we're putting the script together i gotta hope i remember to say that that's really excellent and we're not listening to anything that's going on whereas in the more raw meetings you can be captivated by other stories because some of them can be horrendous and you know, at my home group, there's it's all primarily a bunch of, you know, high bottom drunks. Not that I'm I'm not trying to discount that. I was a high bottom drunk, but I think a lot of us were literally months, weeks, a year away from total degradation and implosion. So why don't you tell us um, your story then, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like today. Um, okay. Maybe, maybe you can give us a background about your childhood. Oh, yeah. My childhood's it, you know? very um, curious in, in some respects. Uh, and, and it's really blessed in many other respects. But um, when I was six, my dad died. And I don't have tons of memories about him, but I definitely have memories about him. And I remember when I was going to school, I used to skip school, like in the first grade. I, I mean, I, I would, I would, even catechism. I would, I would like watch all the kids walking to it, and I'd be like hunkering down in a field. <laughs> then I'd walk home, and I'd tell my mom they canceled it, hmm. and she'd go, "Oh, really?" Anyway, what uh, was that about? Were you afraid? I want. I wanted to make sure that I was at home because I didn't want to go home and find my mom missing. Oh, yeah. So I was definitely suffering some sort of uh, abandonment and loss, and I needed reassurance that things were going to be okay. Mm. So um, she discovered that by taking me to a shrink. Mm. So I had my first visit, and it wasn't my last, with a shrink when I was like you know six years old. Hmm. And I was doing some marginal things like killing animals. And and I'm not talking about legally hunting them. You know, I was too young to even take the uh, DNR test in Michigan. I'm talking about like kids' pets and shit. And so there was some un, something unresolved there, something... Uh, borderline or maybe even just borderline personality defect, which is worse than sociopath, really. Mm. Anyway, my mom remarried, uh, and then that guy died. And that one was more interesting because I got to participate in that when I was 17. Mm. So um, my dad and I, my mom was sitting with us, but she certainly wasn't paying any attention. But we were watching a Tiger baseball game, 
on TV and it was over and everybody went to bed. And, you know, shortly after we all went to bed, I heard some very strange noises coming out of the bedroom. And so I went in to check and my dad was laying on the bed convulsing and my mom was panicking and then he kind of stopped breathing right in front of us. And I said, mom, call an ambulance. And when she went to go call an ambulance, I started doing mouth to mouth resuscitation on him. I had learned that by taking boating classes. Cause if you operate a motorboat in Michigan, you have to take classes. One of the, one of the things they taught us was, um, uh, CPR. Hmm. So I administered that and then we jumped in the ambulance and went to the hospital and he was dead. And so I think, in retrospect, I think those were formative experiences, and they weren't the only ones. That I had more of them, more of them to the point where it sounds like I'm just bullshitting. And uh, I even had a, a EMDR uh, therapist tell me that I had more tragedy under 20 years old than anybody she knew. Obviously, not a war veteran in Iraq or something that saw a lot of violence and stuff. Right. But I, I definitely had a fair share of loss. Mm. So I don't know. I started drinking when I was, I think the, well, the first time I could drink away from my parents, I was 17. And, um, I went to the Gratiot drive-in in Detroit, just right off Gratiot Avenue by I-94, and I guzzled two bottles of Boone's Farm apple wine, and it was like drinking soda pops. But then I started heaving all over the place and crawling around outside the car in the dirt while the movie was being played, and then um, the next day I thought about it, and I thought, God, I can't wait to do that again. <laughs> and so that's where it started. And it just basically was, I was drinking every day. Once I got out of high school, I drank every day. Very rarely I did not drink. And it just got worse and worse and worse. You know, I drew lines in the sand and I would, and then I draw another one. For example, when I was first starting my career in Denver, I never drank before five o'clock in the afternoon. I always drank five o'clock and then maybe I closed a lot of bars. I, I would really love to have the stack of money that I pissed away in bars and the time. And I think it, if I saw the numbers, it'd probably freak me out. Yeah. But, um, it just got worse and worse. I mean, you know, within a handful of years, I was drinking before five and then before three and then before, lunch and then at the end I was drinking 24 7. I was driving into work for the last two out of the last three years because I knew it was really screwed up like I'm wearing a suit it's 8 a.m and I'm hammered and I'm thinking I know I'm cool out here on the roads but what if someone hits me then I'm gonna be getting a DUI mm-hmm so I quit for a while. I quit drinking early in the morning. I just would wait till I got to my office around 8.30. And then, um, but then I started again. And I was driving into work drunk. And 
um, I that's when I said that wasn't the reason why I said you're a mess. You got to stop. But I knew deep down inside that that behavior was really not very good. Yeah. Um, did anybody else notice or you know start telling you you have a problem yet, or was was it still pretty well you know hidden? Oh no, my uh, my second wife. Um, yeah, she noticed, uh, and she really noticed it almost every day. <laughs> it was a problem. It how, was, yeah, definitely a first problem. My first wife, my first wife, um, she left me and went to California, and um, she was uh, ultimately killed in a car wreck. Hmm. So that kind of fits in with my experience like I was 24 when that mm-hmm. happened yeah so yeah I uh, there seems to be a lot of transitions going on with people around me when I was younger yeah for sure so and you know I met her in a bar uh, and you know she I don't think she was an alcoholic or a addict she wasn't but she did like to party mm-hmm. and so we kind of got along and um things happened yeah <laughs> he's pointing at his son <laughs> and we connected and um you know life happened yeah okay so in the second marriage here, um, that didn't last, right? Like, I mean, you got divorced. Yeah, um, but that's because, go ahead, I'm sorry. Ask I'm just it. wondering, um, did your drinking have anything to do with this relationship ending? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I was drunk when I picked her. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and she was such a militant about life that, the only way you could live with this woman is to be drunk. Mm. She somehow she was supposed to be in Muammar Gaddafi's body <laughs> as a third world dictator, but she ended up in her body and I met her and then I became one of her victims. Man. It's like she, God has a sense of humor and he's it's, Oh my it was awful. I mean she was just uh all right. So. Hey, law of attraction. That's right. You know? Um, so after the divorce, you still hadn't gone to AA yet? Or have oh, you no. Or? I was sober for the last three years of our marriage. Okay. So um, are you only doing uh, like alcohol? Like, I guess, are you only drinking alcohol or have you introduced other substances? Oh, I've done everything under the sun except for heroin. Huh. I've done crack. I've done. The only thing I haven't done was uh, heroin. Anything that came onto the market since I've mm-hmm. been sober. Like I would have loved to try to X. When did you start experimenting with drugs? When I was in college. And at the end of my drinking, my drinking was you know, it was not able to take me far enough away from myself. So I was doing shrooms a lot at the end. Mm. So I actually, when I went into the 
treatment place that I went into, I I, tr- I went in there and told them that I had a drug problem because I really didn't want to quit drinking. Right. But after my intake interview, they said, you know what, we, we really believe you might have a problem with alcohol. And if you can address that, these other things will fall away. Yeah. So I knew I had a problem with alcohol. Jesus, yeah, but- I had gotten a couple of DUIs. I had already been seeing a alcohol counselor in 1994. Mm-hmm. Um, I was already doing periods of um, abstinence. Mm-hmm. You know, all the alcoholic behavior. Um, I I even audited my drinking through through Scientology. How did that go? Um, it was a process that I was somewhat familiar with. Mm-hmm. We did an audit. Uh, we did visualization. Um, one of the things that the auditor said to me is, you know, it seems like you some of the things that compelled you to drink early on is that you had this sense that life was extremely fragile and live hard and party hard because you could drop dead tomorrow. But you've, out, you've outlived both fathers. So I was probably, I don't know, 30... I can't remember exactly, but I was older than both of the men that had died that were father figures. Yeah. And so the auditor called me out on it and said, dude, yeah, yeah. And so we did some visualization. We tore up some paper, you know, that had drawings on it. Mm -hmm. And then I walked out of there and I'm like, oh, yeah, man, this, yeah. And I was drinking within 24 hours. So how did you eventually come to AA? Well, um, I had been, I was driving back from uh, Michigan. I was on vacation with Momar and um, I had been, I, you know, we stopped in Nebraska the night before and I was drinking there and we're driving down the highway, Momar and then Momar's uh, mother. And Momar's mother said to me, when are you going to quit this art thing, you know, this dream thing, and get a real job? Now, we've been driving from Michigan. This happens between Sterling and Fort Morgan when this woman comes up with this question. Mm-hmm. And I've been selling art for my whole life. And I went, I just flew off the handle. I'm driving. I, I mean, I just started raging on her. And she wanted to get out of the car. And walk to Denver. And I'm like, what the fuck's wrong with you? It's like a hundred fucking miles. I'm not going to walk. I'm not dropping you off on the highway. <laughs> and when the, the the vehicle's quiet, very quiet after that for all the way to hugging Denver. So then we got home. And one of the reasons why my mother-in-law was with me is because my cousin was getting married, so she was there for the wedding. Well, they are going to the bridal thing, whatever that, that is. And when they went to that, I went to Marshall Liquors, and I picked up a pint of vodka and a pint of whiskey, and I took my hunting dog to Clear Creek and drank both those bottles, sucked down a handful of smokes, Um 
threw the ball in the creek for my dog. And I realized, man, I'm really hammered. I got to drive home. Mm. So I drove home and then um, my brother-in-law called me and he said, we're missing one person for the bowling, for this work bowling team. And we need a bowler and can you help? And I said, dude, I am hammered, but I can be there, but don't count on anything from me. And I said, I need to take a shower. So that's about the last thing I remember that day. Um, you know, I don't really believe that I would have such bad behavior, but some of the shit I heard that I did. So you made it? Was bad behavior. Yeah. You made it to the, to help? To yeah, I did. Um, but you don't, you don't hardly remember much of it? No, it was a, yeah. just little segments of the whole evening yeah um and i i you know i was told i did all kinds of stuff which i don't believe because i don't remember doing it you know what i mean right yeah yeah of course uh which included my wife coming downstairs this is just one thing i mean i'm face down downstairs on the floor and she came to pick me up and I guess I tried to punch her in the face. I, you know, I, I'm not that kind of a person. I think it was bullshit. Right. Right. <laughs> so the next morning when I woke up or came to, however you, I like to say woke up because I was for years and years and years impervious to alcohol. Mm -hmm. Um, I was I could always get up early. I don't care how much I had to drink. And you know, just a little hair of the dog, you know, a shot of vodka in the morning and you're ready. So I got up and I opened the front door of the house and I was looking out at my truck and I was trying to remember if I had any alcohol in there. I mean, I'm definitely hiding alcohol by now hmm. from the wife. And uh that's when I had my jumping off place is right there with the storm door shut, looking out the, at my truck, you know, and the regular door open to my left. And I'm just like, if I drink today, I might as well just go pro. Not that I wasn't a hall of famer. When I say go pro, I'm talking bag, trench coat under the bridge. Yeah. Uh, total, loss of reality and and you think like that like i remember driving past a trailer park on federal um on the south side of i-76 in denver and i'd be looking at those trailers thinking i think i'd rather live there than the way i'm living right now with that woman and the drinking and all this stuff i think i'd like to live here alone in one of these than what I'm doing, which by the way, was not a very uh, sort of high standard. Yeah. <laughs> it was like in retrospect, it's like, wow, that's, that's a pretty lofty goal you got there, buddy. Um, anyway, I was very close to losing everything because it just was a huge problem. And, uh, I decided, okay, you either drink and go pro or you go try to get help. And I decided to try to go get help, and that was the beginning. And I, I remember some of the really fascinating things that happened there 
Um, I, that was the first time I did a meditation. It was guided, and I really liked it. I had never done anything like it. And I'm not going to say it got me to an altered state of consciousness, but I'm going to say that it was impactful and brought some sort of mysticism to my life, which is what I think I was looking for a lot of times when I was drugging and drinking, mm -hmm. you know, chasing the buzz, you know, looking for that elevated humanity. Unfortunately, it's chemically induced versus spiritually. Mm -hmm. So that's when it started. I went to West Pines and started going to meetings and have not had a drink since. Um, so how did your program work early on for you? Like, what was that like? This is 19, this is 2000, 2000 just the year 2000. Yeah. Um, okay. so there's no, there's, there's no smoking in the rooms anymore, right? Or is there? Oh yeah, there is. Okay. So yeah. it still has that old school vibe to yep, it. Yep. There was the, um, old school, like you, you walked in and it smelled like a big old ashtray. And if you weren't a smoker, tough, tough. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, but yeah, and then then it was interesting when they got rid of smoking because all the old guys who smoked are like, yeah, 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 all of them with their throat cancer and shit. Yeah, so, uh, I, I'm sorry, I forgot the question. Oh, I was just kind of trying to get a um, like a visual of what oh, it was what like, kind of like in, the, in 2000 for you yeah. working this program, like your first year. Tell me about your first year. Um, my first year was uh, white-knuckling the whole way. I didn't have a sponsor. Um, I was going to meetings all the time. I, I was not doing the work. Uh, I fantasized about drinking a lot. One of my favorite fantasies was getting up in the morning and turning the shower on, and it was vodka. So I would start my day with a delicious vodka shower. <laughs> You know, anything I saw that was alcohol-related, I saw. The billboards, drive by my old liquor stores and turn and look at them as if I'm looking at an ex-girlfriend. Mm -hmm. And it was not recovery. Mm. But what I heard in the meetings always, it was interesting, and it's like, oh, yeah, I was like that, and... Uh, ultimately, I did get a sponsor uh, and started doing the work, but there was an undercurrent there that was pretty messed up beyond early sobriety and just being a, a morally and spiritually vacant soul. Um, there was something else there. That wasn't identified until about five years in. When I when I uh, was diagnosed as bipolar, um, what did that do for you um, for your recovery when you found out that you were bipolar? Like, did it discourage you or empower you? It, it didn't discourage me at all. I I don't know if it empowered me, but it certainly provided some answers as to why. I was the way I was. Yeah. Um, however, it did not make me think, oh, maybe I'm not an alcoholic. You know, maybe I'm just bipolar. Mm -hmm. And 
AA all these last five years has been a waste of my time. But I knew, you know, I remember when I first started going to the trudge, definitely within the first year, I began to wonder if I was an alcoholic. I had not been diagnosed as bipolar at this time. I'm just like, man, I haven't had a drink for whatever it was, six months. Maybe I'm not an alcoholic, you know. So I grabbed one of those pamphlets in the rooms. Um, this one is, you know, is AA for you? And it has 12 questions. And it says in the instructions that um, if you say yes to four or more of these questions, you might have a problem with alcohol. Well, I answered 11 uh, positively. The one that I did not answer positively is the one where they talk about, did you ever try to use, you know, organic natural wine so you didn't drink? And it's like, no, I wanted to get drunk. Hmm. So, no, I never looked at i'm gonna switch drinks now so that i don't get so wet wasted i wanted to be wasted that's mm -hmm. the only one i uh did not answer yes to that's really when i think i'm like holy shit i am a mess mm. and really started to get a bit more serious about it and paying attention and what did you change what did I change? Sure. I ended up getting a sponsor, mm -hmm. and I picked a, a very successful businessman in Denver um, who had, at the time, about eight years and had him as a sponsor till 2016 when he died. Um, the thing that, I mean... There's a lot of things that I loved about that guy, uh, but one of the things that became very clear to me is that he was giving me his time, and he was extremely busy. I mean, he was on boards and had meetings and just very successful uh, businessman in Denver in the commercial uh, real estate game, and he gave me his time. And he and I had similar uh, drinking, drugging patterns. We both wrestled in high school, you know. He was a little older than me, but we had a lot of similar... We both wear suit and ties every day. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, the sponsor thing helped, but I really do think that my psychiatrist helped me in a huge way. Because ultimately, and it took a while, it literally took a couple, three years, we found the right combo for my bipolar uh, organic problem. And I mean, the shift in that was palpable. I mean, it was just like, oh my God. When I went to bed, I had taken my first dose of this particular combo. And the next morning, it was unbelievable it was like night and day and I started feeling better and sobriety began to become even more important because I was feeling better 
and I was, you know, you could go down that idea again, like, oh, maybe I don't really have an alcohol problem. I mean, I feel great. We've got answers about what my, you know, problem is. You and I both know it's not a, it's not a physiological thing. It's, I mean, it is with, in terms of an addiction and that AMA recognizes it as a disease, but it's truly a spiritual anomaly. And that needs to be addressed, uh, regardless of organic diagnoses or the self-diagnosis of alcoholism. Mm-hmm. Um, and even today, I like to uh, participate with some guys in a book club, and and you know. We started now that COVID's has sort of uh, been a thing. We get together and do a face-to-face AA meeting. And so I'm, I'm very interested in sobriety and keeping my eye on the prize. Mm-hmm. Um, looking back, can you pinpoint a time where you realized that you were finally no longer um, obsessed with drinking? Or drugging? When did that obsession lift? It it was definitely when I started doing the work. Uh, before I started doing the work, my AA program was obsessing about alcohol and noticing everything about my past life. When I started doing the work, which requires work, that's why they call it the work, Now I wasn't really obsessing about alcohol. I was looking at myself. I was writing. I was meeting with my sponsor. And so I had not as much time to obsess about it. The shower fantasy went away. The notice, you know, it's interesting. The billboards would have these really sexy women with a nice frosty glass of something, and there'd be some handsome dude there. And that's what I thought drinking was, And but it never looked like that for me. It was always, you know, some insanity would occur, and it was never a sophisticated environment. It was always some dive, you know. Right. <sighs> So uh, I quit looking at the billboards. I quit noticing the bars I used to go to. I quit just noticing my past alcohol experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't in the grocery store looking at the booze, like the beer bottles. I don't think they could start selling hard liquor or wine until later. But, you know, early on in my sobriety, they had plenty of beer. And, you know, I'd go past that section in the grocery store and I would notice it. Now I, I, you know, I walk right past it. I'm not sure I could tell you where it is in the store. Well, in the store these days, it's everywhere now. Yeah. You know, they have piles of, I don't know, whatever. But um, I'm lucky that I'm not where I used to be anyways, especially with them doing that. Yeah. Um, because I, I, it's everywhere, but it's just like piles of, I don't know, boxes to me now. 
So. Well, and the other thing is, is, especially for an addict, and I don't know if this was part of your story, um, we've got legalized uh, THC products now. Oh, yeah, that's right. And I, you know, that wasn't around when I was getting sober. I could have seen myself going on the sort of, you know, marijuana maintenance program. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't really available legally. Yeah. Uh, thank God. So what is it like today now? And what are you doing to maintain um, not just your sobriety, but like, serenity and just trying to you know re- remain um in the moment well that's a great question and it's um really a difficult one to address um as it's very convoluted and protracted mm-hmm. um but one thing that I do that is clearly different than what other people do is I spend a great deal of time in the wilderness. I would like to say sort of like Thoreau or Muir or, uh, you know, some of the itinerant artists from the Hudson River School, uh, like Jesus, you know. <laughs> went into the desert for 40 days and mm-hmm. 40 nights to pray. Or, right. Um, but that's what it's about. Divinity, the hidden, the hiddenness, the divine hiddenness is there. Mm-hmm. And it's very sensory. You experience it on every level. I don't really find that so much in the city. So what I tend to do in the city is isolate and make art. And then, of course, I have to go out and try to make, you know, I, I can make some money with my art, but it's very difficult to be affluent. And so, you know, I do my uh, suit and tie gig occasionally. Um, I, I have a book club, uh, and we, the parameters of the book club is that the book has to be about existential concepts um it could be a a book on buddhism it could be uh, a book on vishnu it could be a book by deepak chopra Mm -hmm. um and we read these books and then we come together and we discuss them so that's been kind of huge for me because i am really very interested in metaphysics and I believe that metaphysics has a great deal to do with sobriety. Mm. I, I do not believe that I got sober. Why would I want to get sober? I wanted to be in an altered state of consciousness. That was my proclivity, my default. Who the hell wants to be sober when you can be in an altered state of consciousness? So there, that was my nature, I thought, was being in an altered state of consciousness. But that's not in alignment with God. And so I became very interested in looking at that. And you don't really turn to, you know, the guys at the bar for that. (laughs) You turn to people that are like-minded and are seeking, incessantly seeking. Mm -hmm. And so that's the book club. And, and of course, I'm doing AA. 
Um, I spend time in the wilderness. I do a lot of writing when I'm up there. How does your art help channel, you know, your connection to a higher power? Or does it? What What does the art do for you, painting, today? Um, it actually works like the drugs and alcohol. Um, it takes me out of whatever pain body I might be in and has its way with me. It, it's very interesting. And, and uh, Cameron, uh, Julia Cameron, who wrote the book, The Artist's Way, mm-hmm. uh, believes it's a, a level of consciousness or a transitional state when you're creating and that essence or source is channeling through you to communicate things for others. And that's how it feels to me. I, it, it, I know this to young people. I was a skeptic until I got involved in this. When people would tell me about Deepak Chopra, I had family members that were into Deepak Chopra. I wouldn't have given that guy the time of day when I was using to save his ass. <laughs> you know, it's like, who cares about these uh, liberal flaky bastards? But And, and they would say things like what I'm saying right now, mm-hmm. but now I've come to experience it mm. where it's transformative and there's periods of time that is lost. Like I'll be painting or creating and then... You know, I'll think it's two in the afternoon and it's five. And when I'm creating some of the things other than my landscapes, there's things that happen to them that weren't planned and I have no idea they happen and it's like, oh, that's great. It's that happy accident. Mm -hmm. I don't believe it's a happy accident. I believe it's a divine you know, compulsion, uh, stimuli, and then I take it to the next one. Mm -hmm. So it becomes like enlightenment. It's like, wow, when I did that one thing by accident that made it better, let's remember that, take it to the next one. And then you get another happy accident or a, in God's realm, there are no, there's no such thing as an accident. It's the manifestation of divinity and um, consciousness, creativity. Uh, They just keep getting better. So that's just sort of like the program. You know, you do the work and you just kind of piggyback good information on the next piece of good information and you're enlightening yourself and it never ends. Enlightenment never ends. And I find that in making art. And there's a lot of people in writing about the connectivity of creatives and a higher power. But I always wonder if they're written by megalomaniacs or something that are trying to say, like, I'm connected to God and you're not because you're not an artist. But I don't know. So... Um, you have 21 or 20, 20, 20 years. That's right. You got your 20 year chip. Um, 
if you could give yourself a piece of advice at any point in this journey, what would you tell yourself? What would you advise to yourself? You mean like if maybe I, maybe on day one, Patrick, day day one, or year sober one. Patrick. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things I would tell myself now, uh, you know, in business or things like that. But I think what I would say to myself um, in recovery, early recovery, if I could pull myself aside and sponsor me, maybe, is the first step is huge. I mean, that's it right there. You can you can stay sober with an authentic core first step. Because I don't believe it's anything we do. I truly believe that it is um, an intervention. And it's manifested through affirmations. Like, how many times did you say, I am not going to drink today? How many times did you say that in your career of drinking? I said it, I don't know. How many days are there in a year? 365 times 26 years. I am not going to drink today. Well, I truly believe that that manifested. I truly believe that what manifests in a spiritual sense is your core belief. Mm -hmm. You may posture one way and strut around and say, yep, I'm going to do that. But your core knows the truth. It's our core that's the alcoholic, too. It's cunning and baffling. And it knows us better than we know ourselves. Mm. So I think that I manifested sobriety. Like I said earlier, I didn't want to be sober. I, I like being in an altered state of consciousness. I mean, come on. Mm -hmm. It's badass to watch a butterfly when you're tripping your ass off. <laughs> and if I was tripping my ass off, I was drinking because I drank drinking and drugging and cigarettes and women all went together in mm -hmm. this feel good thing. Mm. So first step is huge. I think you can stay sober without doing the work with an authentic core molecular first step. But the 11th step, I think that's where it's at. I mean, there's a lot of practical work in the earlier steps, um, but I think the 11th step is uh, where that spiritual sickness starts to get addressed. Nice. So I'd say work on, get the first, and then, you know, do the others, but pay attention to 11. Because that's the one I think we all have to do all the time. Patrick, thank you for doing this. Thank you for sharing your story. My pleasure. Any burning desires or final thoughts? Actually, there's a lot of them, but I'm going to just say one. Okay. When you are thinking about doing something and you're in that battle that you think is occurring in your brain, do I do this? Do I not do this? Do I Listen to your heart, not your brain. And because whatever your brain's telling you to do is wrong. It's ego. It's the alcoholic. And that heart-centered uh, living is where it's at in terms of doing the, the next right thing. And it is a Christ consciousness thing. That's why they called Christ the sacred heart. He was a heart-centered being. 
And so if you are in a choice point, you know it. You know, the struggle, should I, oh, man, I don't really want to do that. That's the hardest thing to do. It's easy to do this, but it's not the best thing. Do what your heart tells you to do. Your heart actually has more electromagnetic firing and neurons and all that than your brain. Thanks again, Patrick, for sharing your story on the Recovery Edgecast. I've had the privilege of going through the steps with Patrick and really digging deep in my own soul for peace. In our next episode, we'll hear from Patrick and Beck, father-son, for the final episode of this father-son series. I hope you enjoy. Don't forget, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, we are on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and now iHeartRadio. Please share the podcast and help others hear these stories of experience, strength, and hope. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time. That ends episode 10 of the Recovery Edgecast.